Father, we, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us and bless us and sustain us. And uh, we ask today that you'll give us wisdom and insight into your word and to help us to understand the things that you have given to us through your spirit and preserve for us over these years uh, so that we can understand your plans and purposes better. And uh, we ask all this for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, I think last week we left off in chapter 15. We were over page 63, 64. I, I kind of did a big overview. We read part of this, and then I did a, a large overview of uh, this chapter. This is, in a very real sense, this is the middle of Acts. Um, this this um, kind of brings to a focus the things that have led up to this chapter and then gets us ready for what's going to happen afterwards. And it's the council in Jerusalem. And uh, we introduced it last week. Let me show you. Let's, let's take a look at this chronologically. If you look on page 9 in your notes, we'll be at page 9 and page 10. Let me show you where this is chronologically, what's going on around this time. <clears throat> so if you're there on page 9, at the very bottom, the last line, uh, A.D. 48, 49, uh, Paul and Peter returned to Jerusalem for the Apostolic Council, uh, which with the assistance of James frees Gentile believers from the requirement of circumcision in opposition to Pharisaic believers. So that, that's what we're talking about. Uh, you can see just before that, AD 46, 47, Paul and Barnabas take the first missionary journey where they go to Cyprus and then into Asia Minor. Uh, Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all those cities that we uh, looked at a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Paul has a, has a second visit to Jerusalem in the intervening time. And then probably somewhere around AD 48, Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, which y'all are all familiar with. And that's really interesting uh, because what Paul addresses in Galatians is the exact issue that's dealt with in the Jerusalem council. Uh, because some of these believers, some of the early Christians who were from the party of the Pharisees, they have come forward and they said, you know, all of the Gentiles that are now coming into the church, they have to be circumcised and they have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul writes Galatians uh, in response to that teaching that's already starting to infiltrate the church. And in Galatians, he says, no, that's not right. Uh, Jesus has set us free from all those things. And so uh, it's interesting that Paul writes that letter before you have the council. And, one of the, and there's debate among scholars as to whether, you know, Galatians comes first or the Jerusalem council comes first, which one it is. To me, it would make sense that if they had already had the Jerusalem council, Paul wouldn't have had to write Galatians. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, this would have already gone around and Paul would have just said, hey, we've already decided this matter. The other apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, this is what we're doing. We've even got a letter. So it makes sense to me that Paul writes Galatians first and then he goes up to um, Jerusalem to figure out what's going on. In fact, in one place, Paul says that on that trip, he was, you know, we were going to make sure that we hadn't run in vain. You know, that I hadn't run ahead of what was going on with everything. And, and you know, preach this and, you know, <laughs> wrote this letter. Um, but they're going to come to the same conclusions at the Apostolic Council. Uh, and so you can see that takes place in AD 48, 49. If you turn the page, another thing happens. This is going to be mentioned um, in a couple of chapters. Chapter 18, Claudius, uh, the Roman emperor, expels Jews from Rome. 
we will talk about that. That, that causes some problems for everybody, in a sense. Then um, 50 to 52, Paul's second missionary journey. And I, I think we'll, we'll probably get into that today. In fact, I'm pretty sure we're going to get into that today. And he is going to return uh, this time with Silas. And they're going to go back through some of the cities that they went to on the first missionary journey. And then they're going to wind up over in Macedonia, uh, which is, you know, part of modern day Greece. And he's going to travel around key cities, Philippi, um, Thessalonica, Berea, Achaia, Athens, and then Corinth. Uh, he writes some of his letters from Corinth. First and second Thessalonians are more than likely written from Corinth. Um, during that first missionary journey. Again, there's debate over when those were written. Um, well, I'll wait and talk about that later. Well, yeah, some scholars try to put first and second Thessalonians being written before Paul actually went there, which makes no sense whatsoever. Because in the letter, he references his trip. So I don't know how you do that, right? And I'll just remind y'all of my favorite quote of all time. Although it always comes as a surprise to them, there are some levels of stupidity that you have to be highly educated to achieve, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> man, it's baffling sometimes. But the focus, uh, Jerusalem Council. So, top of page 63, let's just do a little review. Uh, Acts 15, 1 through 35, some, uh, some of the Christians, some of the brothers, who are of the party of the Pharisees have gone up... Um, Two, uh, they've come out of Judea and they've gone up into Antioch and they are teaching that unless you're circumcised and keep the law of Moses, they can't be saved. And as Paul and uh, Barnabas and all return, uh, that's exactly what they report to the Jerusalem assembly. And last week, I think we read Peter's address, but I want to read it again today. Bottom of page 63. There's a lot of debate. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have talked about, you know, some of what's happened up there. They've gotten reports on it. And then Peter uh, stood up and he says, brothers, you are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. This is talking about when Peter was sent to Cornelius's house about 10 years earlier. If you remember, we, we looked at that last week. Uh, so Peter has already been sent down to open the door to the Gentiles, and the church is aware of that. So that really, though, didn't you know, take off until Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, when they were sent into the nations, right, to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. And then Peter says, 15.8, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving the, uh, the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, that's such an important statement, cleansing their hearts by faith. Um, the overarching uh, picture of what Jesus has done for us in the New Testament is one of cleansing. And it's a shame we don't often think of it that way. We, we focus a lot on forgiveness, which is really significant, really important. But as you think about Jesus in the context of the sacrifices and him being the final sacrifice that supersedes all the other sacrifices, because all those animal sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament era, you know, the writer of Hebrews says those didn't actually do anything. They were just a covering, but they didn't accomplish anything. They, they couldn't accomplish cleansing for sins. 
But now Jesus has cleansed us once for all, right, through his blood. And so here, uh, I love what Peter says there, that, that through faith, their hearts have been cleansed. Uh, I'm going to come back and talk about that a little bit later in some of Paul's sermons, because Paul's going to pick up on that idea somewhat. 1510, he says, now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples next that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Uh, the, the, the Pharisaic teachers often talked about the, the law as being a yoke. And, and you, you know, y'all know what a yoke is. I think we're all close enough to know, right? It's a collar you put on cattle or oxen, largely to pull a plow, something like that, and, and carry it along. And so the, the Pharisees, rabbis, they would talk about the law being a yoke, uh, something that you had to bear, right? And in that context, Jesus comes in and says, hey, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? And he's clearly contrasting his way to the law, right? Because Jesus is about to bring that thing to a close right? and bring in a whole new way. So here it's interesting that I almost think Peter's thinking about that, right? Um, why in the world would we want to put them under a yoke that, that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And that's very true. Uh, Israel had always been faithless. Um, you, you can't really find a good place in the Old Testament or even into the New Testament where they're being faithful to the Lord. And now they're living in a time where they've rejected their own Messiah. Right? I mean, it's unbelievable. So here, uh, uh, 1511, Peter says, On the contrary, we believe we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. So Peter makes this big point. The, sa the same way that the Holy Spirit fell on us, uh, he fell on the Gentiles. And, and that happened before they were baptized or anything else. So why would we try to put them under the law at this point? 512, then the whole assembly fell silent. And they also listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Uh, so as Paul and Barnabas have gone out, they've seen the same thing. People responding in faith, the Holy Spirit uh, falling on uh, the new believers and so forth and so on. And so with that evidence, that's enough to be convinced. And 64, James uh, steps up. James has already been introduced a couple of chapters earlier. And this is James. Uh, this is James, the half brother of the Lord Jesus. If you remember the disciple James, who was the brother of John, right? The, <clears throat> the James who was one of the 12, Herod had his head cut off. He had him killed earlier. So this is James, the half brother of the Lord Jesus, who becomes a major figure in the early church. It's also the James that writes the letter that, that bears his name in the New Testament. So it says, after they stopped speaking, James responded, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported, um, this is, the, this is um, the only time in Acts that Peter's full Hebrew name, Simeon, is used. Often he's called Simon, you know, or Peter or Cephas, one of those names. Here, uh, this is the only time he's referred to as uh, Simeon. You know, and James is, man, James is as, as Jewish as you can get. Uh, besides Paul, he's the most Jewish person in the New Testament, if you know what I mean. Uh, so here he, he uses his um, given Aramaic uh, Hebrew name. He says, uh, Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take the Gentiles, uh, take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree that this, uh, with this, as it's, as it's written, after these things I will return and build David's fallen tent. 
I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. Uh, therefore, my judgment, um, or, or therefore in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for these among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write uh, to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in, in every city and every Sabbath day. He is read aloud in the synagogues. So here uh, we talked a little bit about this last week. Um, James says, you know, Peter is exactly right. Why are we going to try to put them under the law? It's clear from what Paul and Barnabas have said. The Holy Spirit's fallen on these people and they weren't circumcised and they didn't keep the law. So it seems like that's what the Lord wants to do. And then he quotes, this is really interesting. And this is, this is a major problem for some scholars. In 15, 16, and 17, he quotes from Amos 9, 11 through 12, the prophet Amos. And um, the interesting thing though, and, and this is true of all the New Testament, almost every quote from the New Testament is taken from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was translated, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek in the intertestamental period, right before, before Jesus, a couple hundred years before him. And it's pretty clear that the Septuagint, the Greek form, becomes kind of the dominant uh, Bible in that culture. And, 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 you know, there's reason for that. Um, in the early church, particularly, everybody's going to be speaking Greek. The vast majority, even the Jewish believers that are there, they're, they're going to be conversant in Greek. So it would make sense that they would use the Septuagint, the Greek translation, right? Whenever you pull out your Bible, you don't have a Hebrew and Greek Bible, right? You got it in English, <laughs> which is a translation of the Greek and the Hebrew, right? And when you turn to different passages, if I'm sure y'all have done this, you turn to passages in different English, and tra English translations, and in several places, they're not exactly the same because the translators have had to make calls over how to translate it, right? Uh, and the interesting thing about this Amos uh, translation is that the Greek version uh, uh, is different from the original Hebrew version, which happens a lot with this. And let me just say, that's a whole study in and of itself. And I don't want to, we clearly are not going to get into that. But one of the, one of the things uh, that is different about the Hebrew version and then the Greek version, well, let me, let me read the Hebrew version to you, just so you have that in your mind. And then we'll talk about this version here, because this one is very apt for the circumstances. Um, you know, Amos is on back there, boy, nobody looks at him in a long time. Amos 9, 11, and 12. And I think the, the verses are different in this because in the Septuagint, no, it's, no, it's the same here. Uh, sometimes the verses in the Septuagint and the Hebrew Bible are, are not the same. And uh, particularly in the Psalms, some, some of the Psalms, they're numbered in, in entirely differently. But here, it's the same thing in your Bibles. Um, this, this is what it says in Amos uh, 9, 11, 12, and 13. Um, and you can see this in comparison to what we just read there. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, 
and I'll repair tear its breaches and raise up its ruins and build it uh, as in the days of old. Now, that's pretty close to what uh, James quotes there. Now, listen to this next verse. Uh, and I will do this so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord. Says the Lord who does this, right? Notice there's no mention of Edom in here. And instead he says, um, I'm going to do this so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, not restore Edom, but so that the rest of humanity, the rest of the nations may seek the Lord, even all the nations who are called by my name. Now that is in the Hebrew text, but it's subtly different in the Septuagint. And then the last thing where it says, uh, and these things are known from long ago, in the Hebrew text it says, behold, these days are coming, the, the Lord declares. Right? So it doesn't have the thing about these things were declared from long ago. It's a little bit different. Now, the thing that I find fascinating is, is that, that the Septuagint version is especially apt for this. Right, for what's going on here. Um, and so there's a, this huge thing of why would James know the Septuagint? Right? I mean, why would he be doing that instead of Hebrew? And the answer is obvious because uh, not all the synagogues had a Hebrew text that they were reading from. More than likely, these, these people grew up uh, reading the Septuagint, even the Jews, uh, more than likely, uh, predominantly. And I say that because every quote that Paul has in his letters is clearly from the Septuagint. It's from the Greek translation. It's just like if I were writing a book and I quoted, I'm, I'm not going to quote Hebrew and Greek in there. What am I going to quote? I'm going to quote the New American Standard or the ESV or the NIV or something like that, right? So, um, and again, this, this raises all kinds of questions that people uh, get bent out of shape about. I just, you know, I tend to see this as, this is the Lord overseeing things and he's allowed these translations to come in and sometimes give us better insight and clarity than what was other. Also, um, um, you, you know, there, there are textual uh, variations that uh, it may be in some cases the Septuagint actually preserves an older reading than even the Hebrew text did. Because the Hebrew text had all different kind of families and, 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 and uh, copies that went through and so forth. So anyway, I just I want to bring that up because um, it's really fascinating. And here the Lord brings this obscure passage from Amos to James's mind, which gives us some indication of, you know, <laughs> the mind of these people in the first century, you know, and how the Holy Spirit's working through them. But the main point is this. Uh, 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 James sees this, this passage from Amos as the fulfillment of what's going on in their times. And that is what's happening is happening so that humanity, all humanity, even the nations may seek the Lord and that the Lord has people among the nations who are called by his name, which is something that used to only be in reference to Israel. Israel was God's unique nation that was to be called by his name. And now in these last days, we have these passages from the prophets. And Amos is not the only one to talk about this, but other prophets talk about in the last days, God will draw from the nations a people for his own name. And so James sees what's happening at that time as the fulfillment of that. And that to me, that's really, really powerful. Notice also, as they've been debating this, there's, there's a couple of things that are happening here. Uh, number one, They've had some debate, 
going into it, right? And they've talked about what's happened. Uh, and in that, there's some discernment about the events that have happened. Oh, wait, it looks like God is in the middle of this, right? And then from that, they go to the scriptures to see if there's some confirmation that this fulfills something about the scriptures that we might have missed before. And then finally, they have consensus over what they ought to do about it, right? Um, that's a great way to solve problems <laughs> in the church, right? Uh, that, uh, and you see them working this out. And I think that's part of the reason that um, Luke puts these chapters in is to show how the early church dealt with these things, right? Not any one person is getting up and saying, okay, here, this, right? They hear from Peter, they hear from James, they hear from Paul, they hear from Barnabas. Everybody debates what's going on. And in the end, James gets up and he confirms it. But um, everybody uh, agrees with it. Notice, um, well, I, we'll read this next part and there's something in there about that. But here, uh, really, really fascinating. Last week, we, we talked about um, the restrictions that they give, uh, 15, 19, 20, 21. Um, those are all things that would have been practiced in the pagan temples, idolatry and immorality, basically, you know. Uh, so forth and so on. Tom, though, Tom sent me a text last week and he, he asked me, have you ever noticed that this was what was required um, of the Gentiles who came into Israel under the Levitical law? I've never seen that before. So, you know, there's some connection with that as well. Uh, really, really fascinating. Um, so here they're not asking them to do anything weird. It's just right. Flee immorality, flee idolatry, which is a command all throughout the New, the New Testament. So. Uh, really, really interesting the way this all comes together. And we'll see the response to it and what they do next in the next couple of paragraphs. Anybody have any questions or, or comments on that part there? Why would they ask them to, I mean, those last two things, strength from blood are not from the law. From the law. Why yeah. would they ask them to, to continue to do that? Uh, pr uh, probably, uh, probably because of the association with the idolatry in it. That the, that the food prepared in a temple would have been strangled, right? And it would have had its blood in it. And also, we're going to, this, this is going to come up here in the next couple of chapters. The, the, the main issue here is saying that you have to do this in order to be saved, right? You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. A little bit later, though, Timothy's going to come on the scene, right? Y'all remember Timothy on the second missionary journey. Paul picks him up very quickly. Timothy's mother is Jewish and his father is a Gentile, right? And do you remember the first thing that Paul does? Anybody remember? He takes him and has him circumcised, right? Because they're going to be dealing with Jewish people, right? And Timothy is part Jew. So Paul is doing everything, right, to make sure we maximize our opportunity to have a witness and also to keep the peace, you know, to keep, you know, there's some things we do to not overly offend our brothers, you know, and so, so later we're going to see that even though these things are not requirements, you know, the circumcision and all that. Well, you know, Paul says it best. I have become all things to all people so that everybody might be saved. To the Jew, I became a Jew. When Paul's hanging out with the Jews, he'll keep aspects of the law in order not to overly offend them to give an opportunity to the hearing of the gospel. Right. And when he's with the Gentiles, he doesn't have to worry about those things. Right. And do whatever. <laughs> so. There's this principle of freedom that comes in. But on this, uh, I think uh, primarily it's to keep them disassociated from the things that would have come out of the temples and the paganism and so stuff like that. More knowledge about 
Yes. Yeah. But, you know, uh, James does say, for since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city and every Sabbath day he's read aloud in the synagogues. So basically, you know, everybody's kind of aware of these things, you know, that the Jews won't eat certain things, you know, or do certain things. So let's just kind of keep that in place, you know. And again, um, on those on, on those things that they say there, you know, he's uh, uh, they're not uh, putting them under the law, but it seems to be that they're saying we're going to do these things to uh, to keep the unity of the early church. Right. Because these things are the things that go over the line, you know. And, and, and let me say this. <clears throat> Excuse me. y'all. Even though we've been freed from the law, y'all know all uh, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament for believers to do. Right. Because that's just what God requires in righteousness. The only thing that's not repeated is to keep uh, honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy uh, because uh, we're now in that time where, waiting, where we're waiting for the Sabbath day to come. Right. The, the time when we can all rest, uh, which hadn't quite come yet. So so some of the some of the fundamental um, uh, how do I say this? Some of the fundamental things that God revealed about righteousness in the law, those things supersede the Mosaic law, if, if that makes They're sense. Just for They're just not required for salvation. Yeah, 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 ab- absolutely. Were. And they never were. Yeah, yeah. Loyalty to God was, that was it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other was for ceremonial. Uh, yeah. Fellowship. Yeah. And the things in Leviticus seem to be just, you're going to live among us. It was yeah. alien. Exactly. Just don't do these things because right. they Really? It's going to upset everything. Really? It's going to, yeah, it's going to, it's going to cause all kind of problems. Yeah. Well, they did shit. yeah. But you don't have to be circumcised or come under. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the, yeah. And, and the key thing, um, the key thing is, uh, where do they say it? Uh, you will do well. No, it's, um, at one point, these Pharisees say that they, it's stated plainly, and I can't see it now. They say that you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Oh, yeah, uh, 15.1, top of page 63. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? See, that's the issue. Right. And they're like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, that, you know, that's that's going way too far. You know? And so, you know, it's the, the thing in the New Testament. It's um, well, like in our milk and meat study, it's Christ plus nothing. It's you don't have to add anything on to what Christ has done for us. You know, that that's sufficient. And so, uh, the you know, early church is wrestling with a lot of those questions. Uh, and these issues are going to come up. That's why. So I think this is so central because as Paul goes forward from this point, this this ruling of the council is going to be some significant for several of the episodes that we're going to run into in these next several missionary journeys. Anybody else? Any questions or comments? Yeah. That's y'all. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was thinking about that when I read blood. I'm glad you said that. Uh, yeah, uh, Graziella is talking about in Leviticus, uh, when uh, the Day of Atonement sacrifices, Leviticus 16 and so forth, the Lord is talking about the blood. And there, you know, the blood is to be drained out of the animal. The Jews were not to drink blood or eat 
meat that had not had the blood drained out of it, you know. And the, the reason is the Lord said, the blood belongs to me. That's mine. That's not yours. So that comes to me. What all that means, I have no idea. But it, and it's wild. If you go back and read those passages. Uh, and and he, he, he goes on to say, you know, the blood belongs to me because the blood is what has the life in it. And that is mine. That's not yours. You know, so there's all this imagery about the blood and life and, you know, some really significant things. Very Yes. Yeah. I was in a little country store one time and looked in the refrigerator, the little cubes of blood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And y'all know, man, the man, the, the British make the like to make blood jello and put it in everything, man. I mean, mm. that's yeah. Blood pudding, you know, that to me, that, that seems like an oxymoron. I think a pudding and that sounds good. Blood. Pu what are y'all? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yo, crazy stuff. All right, y'all, let's, let's move on. Page 65, um, we get, uh, they, they decide to write a letter and to send it out. Acts 15, 22, um, it says, Now the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So remember, Antioch is where this whole thing first blew up. Um, so they picked some men, Judas, Call Barsabbas, uh, Silas, both leading men among the brothers. Silas, circle him. He's going to be significant. He's going to go with Paul on the second missionary journey. Paul mentions him in, in several of his letters as well. 1523, they wrote this letter to be delivered to them from the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. So that's all up in that uh, area uh, in, in the lower right-hand corner of Asia Minor. They say, Greetings, uh, because we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. We have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you with our dearly beloved Barnabas and Paul. Um, Notice that our dearly, our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, right? So as they're, as they're sending this letter back to these churches that Barnabas and Paul have been, uh, you know, a key part of, this is their stamp of approval. These are the guys we love, right? They're dearly, listen to them. They know what they're talking about. Uh, 1526, uh, they have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that Paul does in, in a couple of places when he's dealing with false teachers, he brings up this question. Listen, how far have you gone for the things you believe in? Man, I've put my neck on the line and not one time. I've done it a bunch of times. So until you're willing to do that, why don't you sit down and shut up until you know what you're talking about? Right. He, he, he gets that forceful with him. Right. That's why I love Paul. He's still fiery. You know, um, the Holy Spirit takes that fire and he uses it the way he needs to. Uh, 1527, therefore, we have sent uh, Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. So Judas and Silas are sent to give confirmation uh, to what Barnabas and Paul have been saying. 1528, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours. Uh, th this is a, this is a, a, a clumsy uh, word, uh, sentence in Greek. And a lot of the translations, I wish they would just let it be. Uh, clunky, because what it says here in Greek is, it's, uh, uh, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Right. So it gives 
And this one's fine. It says, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision. And, and that is the idea and ours. But, I, but I, like, I, I like the more literal reading there. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things. So notice they recognize what's just happened as the work of the Holy Spirit. They see the witness of the Holy Spirit and the works and the signs and the things that he's done in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. But they also see him being present in the decision making process uh, as they've come to that decision. Uh, so he says uh, to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things that you abstain from food offered to idols from blood, from eat, eating anything that has been strangled and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. Notice how uh, even as they state it, they're not stating it as a law, as a requirement. They say, hey, look, this, this is what we're asking you to do. And you would do well if you do these things, right? You see that? So they're, they're very careful to say, we're not, we're not imposing these things on you as some kind of uh, law that's going to put a burden on you. We think these things are fairly easy, right? So um, you'd do well if you'd keep these things. And, and you can see the way it's responded to, bottom of page 65, Acts 15, 30. Then being sent off, they, everybody, uh, Judas, Silas, Paul, Barnabas, they um, went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. Uh, I want to remind you, I had this question in class yesterday about the going down from Antioch. Right there, going from Jerusalem north to Antioch, in our thinking, we would think they went up because we orient north, south, east, and west. But in the first century and among the Jewish tradition, if you're leaving Jerusalem, you're always going down, no matter which direction you're going. And if you're coming to Jerusalem, you're always going up no matter what, because they saw J Jerusalem as being, you know, the, the highest point, most significant point on planet Earth, uh, theologically speaking. So they delivered the letter, 1531, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement, especially all the older men in there, right? Well, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Uh, if nothing else, oh, man. 1532, both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and strengthened them with a long message. And after spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the message of the Lord. So, you know, this is around AD 49. We turn the page and we're going to be at the beginning of the second missionary journey, which comes a couple of years later. Uh, so you, you can kind of see the, uh, the flow of time there in that section. And with that, we're going to completely change gears. We're going to get into the first, uh, second missionary journey and see what happens now. Anybody, any questions or comments on any of that on page 65 there or, or anything that we just talked about? Everybody tracking along okay? Everybody doing all right? All right. Page 66, Paul and Silas make the second journey, uh, Macedonia and Achaia. This goes from uh, chapter, you know, la latter part of chapter 15 through chapter 18 here. So uh, 1536 says after some time had passed, so, you know, two, three years, depending on how you date those things. Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in every town where we have preached the message of the Lord and see how they're doing. So that's all the towns they went to on the first journey. 1537, Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, 
But Paul did not think it appropriate to take along this man who had uh, deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on to them uh, with them to the work. And there was a sharp disagreement so that they parted company. And so Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. And after being commended to the grace of the Lord by the brothers, he traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. If you take out your map of the missionary journeys, it's the one that has the four maps on it front and back. It says Paul journeys at the, at the top of it. If you take a look at that, the second one on that first page is the second missionary journey. And this, of course, is just of Paul. We don't know what Barnabas and John Mark did. But you can see on that map that uh, Paul and Silas, you see that they leave Antioch over there on the right-hand side of your map. And then they follow up along the coast to Tarsus. And then they go back to Lystra, uh, Derby, and then Lystra, and then Iconium. And then they make the trek across to Antioch in Pisidia. And then they, they, they travel inland over to the port city of Troas. And from there, they go up into Macedonia. Uh, they wind up at the port in Neapolis. Well, they go through Samothrace, which is a little island uh, in the midpoint there. And then the next day, they go over to Neapolis and then into Philippi and all the towns y'all have probably heard before. Um, some of them, maybe not. Uh, Thessalonica is an important one. Berea. Uh, Athens, and then down to Corinth, King Crea, and then back across to Ephesus, and then ultimately on down to Jerusalem. So you see, look at that. That's a, man, they're getting at it now, man. Man, they've got their first class tickets and they are moving. Um, so you, you can see how uh, Paul and Silas, they largely travel uh, on the land in the first part of this. I mean, they make a short boat trip across to Macedonia. Uh, Barnabas and John Mark, they go back to Cyprus, which, of course, if you remember, that's Barnabas's home uh, region. Uh, so here in this second journey, they're going to do a lot of walking and walking a around. Uh, some really interesting things happens on this one. Uh, and so you can kind of picture uh, the route there. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the details. But the big thing is, as they start, uh, Barnabas wants to take John Mark. And Paul's like, oh, heck no, we ain't taking him again. Uh, 1539, it says there's a sharp disagreement, right? Um, down in Mississippi, we'd say they fought like cats and dogs. That's what that word means. Uh, they could not come together on this thing, right? And, and, and I mean, Barnabas is set. Paul is set. And so they divide. They had their separate directions, um, which the Lord often does to multiply his work, right? <laughs> uh, Bad thing personally, maybe, but a good thing for the church, you know. And later we know that, that Paul and all of them are, are, um, are reconciled. One of, one of my favorite passages uh, about this is in 2 Timothy. And you, you, do, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. 2 Timothy, this is one of the last letters uh, that Paul writes. And at the very, in fact, this, this letter is probably written not long before um, Paul is killed and um, he is um, he is giving greetings. Let's see. Is this? Uh, no, wait a minute. Is it? Am I in second? Oh, uh, uh, maybe it's first Timothy. Is it first Timothy? 
Well, I was thinking it was right at the end. Um, why can I not see it? I'm looking right at it. No, it's got to be. Why can I? Why can I not see? What? Oh, oh, uh, Demas. Well, now I cannot put my eyes on it to save my life. Uh, yeah, there he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew he was right here. Second uh, Timothy chapter three. Paul uh, begins to give his greetings in verse nine, closing out the letter, and he says to Timothy. Of course, Timothy, we're, P- Timothy, he's going to pick Timothy up at the very beginning of the second missionary journey. We're about to read about that. So, and, you know, Timothy is one of Paul's right-hand men. He says, do your best to come to me soon. By the way, Paul is in prison as he writes this letter, uh, probably in Rome. More than likely, he's in Rome. Uh, For Demas, in love with this present world, has uh, deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus went to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Huh, I wonder who that is. Hmm. Uh, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So here at the very end of his life, he wants Timothy to go get Mark and bring him because Mark has become very useful to him. Right. So Paul and Mark have made up. Right. He, 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 they've gotten over the desertion. The, the word in 1538, very strong. Um, the deserted, it's, it's, it, the root of that word is, base, is uh, similar to the one that we get the word apostasy from. And, and deserted is a good way to translate it, right? So Paul sees what John Mark did, not just as, you know, he's, he's homesick and he wants to go home. It's like he deserted us in the middle of that when it got rough. And so really sharp disagreement. They separate and go their own ways. But, you know, the Lord uses all of that uh, to spread the work that he's doing. Uh, back on page 66 in your notes, Acts 16, 1, uh, we begin that journey. They, they take off and they go. So uh, Paul and Silas uh, are going to be traveling together, and that's who we're going to focus on. 16.1, it says, Then he went on uh, to Derby and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. Now the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. And so Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. And so he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places... Uh, because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. So that's kind of a big deal, right? He's not circumcising Timothy so that he can be saved, right? He's doing it because Paul knows they need to do that to, to, right, to not cause any barrier to the Jews for them to be able to hear the gospel, right? We don't want to set anything in the way. <clears throat> 16.4. It says, now, as they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem for them to observe. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So in part, Paul is going back to these churches to tell them about the decision made at the Jerusalem council. In case, you know, the false teachers come in and try to teach, no, you have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. So um, that's part of what they're doing here. Uh, with these churches. And notice these are all places that Paul has already been to. We, we haven't gotten to anything new. A couple of interesting things about, that, about Timothy. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, uh, Paul refers to Timothy as his child, his own child. So most, most people think that Timothy may have come a, become a believer under Paul, right? That, that Paul is the one who led him to Jesus. And there's good reason to believe that, right? 
Um, he, he calls him his own child, as he does with some of the other churches, uh, people in the churches that he founds. And so um, here, uh, more than likely, this is what happens. And of course, as you know, Paul is going to take Timothy in and Timothy is going to be a critical part of Paul's missions from this point forward. You know, I mean, I mean, literally, he writes two letters to Timothy. By the end, uh, Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus to oversee things going over, over there. And he writes the two letters to Timothy, first and second Timothy, at the very end of his life to kind of give Timothy, you know, his last charge, his, his last instructions and his last encouragement. And we'll, and we'll talk about those a little bit later when we get to the end of Acts. So Timothy is going to be a really critical uh, player going forward here. And we're going to see a lot more about him. Um, also, uh, I've already mentioned this, but let me give you the passages. Paul talks about being all things to all people in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, you know, to the Jews, I become a Jew and to the Gentile, I become a Gentile in order that. Right. Uh, these people may be saved in order they may, you know, have an every opportunity to hear the gospel. He doesn't want to put a stumbling block, something in front of him. And then another critical statement that Paul makes in First Corinthians seven nineteen, he's talking about circumcision. And in First Corinthians seven nineteen, he says, listen, circumcision is nothing in and of itself. It's just cutting some skin off. That's all it is. Right. So in other words, he's saying there's no. It doesn't do anything, right? Spiritually speaking, right? And to me, that's a really, really important statement from Paul because Paul has this view that, that these rites and these rituals, they're not really anything in and of themselves. They're just a testimony to something. But just because you were circumcised, it didn't do anything, really, right? Other than getting something cut, that, that's it, right? So it's a really powerful statement. Um, and we'll talk more about that in Paul's theology as we go forward, because Paul really, you know, following the teaching of Jesus, he's really going to upset some apple carts as we go forward with some of this. Top of page 67, uh, we get the next little journey part. It says, now uh, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, uh, they tried to go into Bithynia but the spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So passing Mysia, they came down to Troas. And during the night, a vision appeared to Paul, a Macedonian man. Uh, and it's interesting in Greek, it says, and a certain Macedonian man, right? A specific Macedonian man, that's what it seems to be. Uh, was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. And so after he had seen the vision, we, see that in bold? It's the first time we have that, and we'll talk about that. We immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to evangelize them. Now, look at your map one more time uh, on, this, on the second missionary journey. Um, you, you can see there on the map that, you know, Paul, they've been in Lystra and Iconium, and the idea is uh, they've, they've headed over towards Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch, there in the middle of Asia Minor. And you, you can see on the map up at the top, do you see Galatia coming up from Antioch? It's kind of curved up from there, right? P the province of Galatia. Then you see in the very north, Bithynia and Pontus. You see that? And then over there, you've got Asia, but, but Asia really extends uh, up into the north to that whole peninsula. This whole peninsula is referred to as Asia, Asia Minor. 
And so that's what Luke is talking about uh, when he is referring to that, all these inland territories. And notice that, they're in, that Paul is intending to preach there in Phrygia and Galatia. Uh, Phrygia, notice it's, Phrygia is down just right of Ephesus and Miletus. You see that? So they're, they're planning to preach in that area up in northern Asia Minor. But the Spirit says, no, you can't do that. They're prevented from it. The, the Spirit of Jesus tells them, nope, you cannot go into Bithynia either. Uh, I don't want you to go there. I want you to go keep on heading west, right? Um, endless speculation over why the Spirit won't allow them to do that. Uh, one of the most fascinating ones to me is uh, Peter, when he writes his letters, uh, if you go and you read his first two letters, he greets uh, those who are of the dispersion in Bithynia and Pontus and several of the places that are up here in the north part of Asia Minor. And uh, one of the most intriguing things that's been put forward is, is that it may be that Peter was already up there doing work as Paul was heading in that direction. And that's why the Spirit says, no, don't, no, you don't need to go up there. Peter's already doing stuff up there. I want you to go across. And, and the reason that I think that's so fascinating is because Paul, when he talks about his uh, work as an apostle in Romans, he said, you know, my, my goal was not to go and build on another man's foundation, but to keep on moving and go and specifically find the people who had not heard the gospel yet. So it would make sense that if Peter were up there already doing some work, that the Holy Spirit would um, keep them from going up there and, and doing that same thing. Uh, also, a really interesting reference, um, the Spirit of Jesus there. Notice the first thing we have, the Holy Spirit prevents them. And then in uh, verse 7, it's the Spirit of Jesus. This is the only place in the New Testament that uses that specific construction, the spirit of Jesus. Um, and, and probably, um, you know, the, the connection there is uh, Jesus is the one who sends the spirit. Acts 24, 49, a little bit later, uh, Paul is, is quoting uh, from Jesus. And there Jesus specifically talks about sending, his, uh, sending the spirit to the people. Also, I mean, you can't help but think about John's gospel. John 14, 15, and 16, where, you know, um, Jesus is given his uh, discourse on the Holy Spirit. And he says, uh, listen, I'm going away, but it's very much the better for you if I go away, because if I don't go away, then I won't send the Spirit. But if I do go away, I will send you the Comforter, right? And so it's very clear that uh, the Spirit that has been sent uh, has been sent by Jesus, also the Father. And in uh, uh, John's gospel as well, the Spirit is sent in, in by Jesus, by the Father. And so probably that's the idea here. Um, and the fact that, he, that that's mentioned right in line with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's another way to, to think about the Spirit, the Spirit that's been sent from Jesus uh, to guide people along. Right. And, it, and again, if you think about the Holy Spirit in John, John says that big part of what the Holy Spirit is going to do. He's just going to take my things and he's going to reveal them to you. Right. So what the Holy Spirit says is what Jesus is saying. Right. They're not fighting over anything. <laughs> right? um, one of my favorite statements about the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit is um, that is the only small group in history that has ever worked well. <laughs> <laughs> If you've ever been a part of a small group, you know what we're talking about. 
Um, so here they, they, they don't go off. And if you notice on your map, they go across to Troas, which is a, a port town. And that's where uh, Paul has this vision of a man in Macedonia say, Paul, come over here, help us. We need help. So that's exactly what they do. Uh, we'll, we'll read this next paragraph. Anybody have any questions or comments on any of that so far? All right. Uh, Acts 16, 11 through 15. Oh, I didn't say anything about the we. Uh, yeah, the we. That's a big deal. Uh, again, there's endless debate by the scholars. Some of the most stupid things I've ever heard ever reading on this. I mean, okay, so if Luke is writing this and he's using the pronoun we, who do we think he's talking about? Well, this is probably where Luke joins Paul, right? So he probably joins him uh, somewhere uh, around Troas as, as they get there. Um, so, and again, we're, we're not told for sure, but this is, the, this is the first time we have the we mentioned, the we and the us. So it makes sense to me that this is where uh, Luke actually picks up in the story. This is where he's joined Paul, and now he's going to be an eyewitness to, to many of the things that happened from this point forward. Um, you know, and, and again, you read commentaries and you get into, well, Luke couldn't have been the guy that wrote Acts because of this, that, and the other, and so it can't be him that says, you know, just utter, just come on, just let it be as simple as it wants to be there. Um, my view is that Luke wrote Acts and the Gospel, and Luke the physician is the guy that's being talked about here. The same Luke that we just read about in 2 Timothy, right? Luke alone is with me. Oh, man, alive. You know, you read scholars. I don't know if there was ever actually a person named Luke that traveled around with Paul. Well, Paul thought so. Right? Paul calls him by name. I don't, oh, man. I'll tell you what. Right. Right. Driving you mad. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, now, uh, you know in, in, order, in order to get your doctorate, you have to write a thesis. And that thesis has to be in an area that nobody else has written on before, right? <laughs> which means, at, at, and one of my prophets at seminary said this. He says, which means that we are getting doctoral theses that are on the most abstract, useless things you can possibly write on, things that nobody is ever going to be worried about. And some of them, are beyond ridiculous. You know, that's where scholarship is now, right? In order to get a name for yourself, you got to come up with a new thing that nobody's talked about. And so everybody, oh man, come on, just, you know. And, and, I, and I don't understand why they do that. You can make so much more money doing something else, uh, you know, and not have to worry about all that. Uh, I, I don't understand it. Acts 16, 11 through 15. So then setting sail from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. That's the little island. Um, in, in the Aegean Sea there, that's, that's a midway point uh, between Asia Minor and then Macedonia. So they go there, they stay. Uh, and then the next day they go to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony, which is a leading city of that district in Macedonia. Uh, if you're interested, go read about Philippi in the first century. This is a major, major city, very important city in the Roman Empire. It's the, it's the most prominent city in this whole area. A lot of things happen there. Uh, one of the most interest, interesting things, though, is one of the most respected medical schools in the first century was in Philippi. And so uh, many scholars believe that, that Luke may have received his education in Philippi. And there's, there's good reasons to believe that because 
uh, as they as they get on ground, they immediately go to Philippi. And one of the things Paul has been doing is he will go to cities where he has some pre-established connections. So if Luke has family and connections in Philippi, it makes sense that they go there first. And so that's that may be what's going on there. Uh, fascinating to think about that. Um, then it says uh, they stayed um, there for a, uh, in the city for a number of days. 1613 says now on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we thought there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who were gathered there. Notice there's no mention of a synagogue here. Right? And, and, and it may be that there was not a prominent synagogue in Philippi. Philippi was very Greek. It was very Roman. And so there's some question about whether or not there was a synagogue. I, the, what happens here, it makes me think maybe not. Uh, because on the Sabbath, which is the day they would normally go to the synagogue, uh, they went down outside the city gate uh, by the river where we thought there was a place of prayer. Also, uh, it may be uh, uh, Philippi was one of the rare cities in the in the uh, Roman Empire. There was only a handful of these that had been that was it, it was so important that it had been given, given special dispensation by Rome that they didn't have to pay taxes. They could own their own land or they could sell their own land. There was a lot of benefits to being in Philippi and to be that deep in, in, in Roman um, dispensation also meant they, they were probably followed all the, the <clears throat> Julian laws and all the you know, Roman stipulations and so forth. And if you were a Roman colony town like that, one of the things that was forbidden was to have temples of foreign worship inside the city. So it may be that the Jews could not have even put up a synagogue inside the city. So they're just meeting outside for prayer, so forth and so on. And that, that's probably what's happening here with this group of women that are gathered outside the city. 1614. Now, a woman named Lydia. Oh, here we go. We've heard of her before. Or, or you should have heard of her before. We have, not in Acts. We haven't heard of her. But first time we hear of her here. She is a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. That should sound familiar to you. Thyatira's got a whole letter written to it in the book of Revelation, right? It doesn't sound like a place you want to live, though. Uh, so here, Lydia is from there. And uh, it says uh, she worshiped God. And was listening. So Lydia is clearly, she is a Greek, but she worships God, right? She, she's, she's cast her lot with these other Jewish women, apparently, who have gathered together for prayer. Then, uh, this is one of my favorite statements in Acts. Then the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. Look at that. Ah, such a great description. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by, by Paul. Um, I love that for a bunch of different reasons. This gives us great insight into how the Lord works on some levels, right? In order for Lydia to become a believer, every part of that sentence has to be in place. Paul has to be there preaching the gospel, right? So she's not going to come to Jesus without hearing the proclamation of the gospel, right? Y'all probably heard that old saying. I think it's, uh, no, who was it? Saint... Who was the guy with the animals? Um, Francis, right? Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. One of the most stupid, ridiculous, irrelevant statements made in all of Christ Christianity. You, the gospel has to be spoken. You can't know who Jesus is just through somebody else's good works. 
you have to say something about the death and the resurrection of Jesus in order for it to make sense. So Paul has to be there speaking those things, right? But the Lord needs to open her heart to be able to pay attention, to understand what Paul is saying, right? And that's what happens. And then 1615, now after she and her household were baptized, she urges, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, uh, another way to translate that, that is, if you consider me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my house. And so she persuaded us. So here Lydia becomes a believer. She's the first believer. Um, as far as we, as far as Luke tells us on this, um, uh, well, in Macedonia, right? Timothy may have been the first believer on this that Luke records for us on this first journey if he came to faith under Paul's teaching. But now Lydia comes on the scene and she is the first one in this new phase of the uh, second missionary journey here. And so that's going to open up the door. She's going to come back again. We're going to come back and talk about her a little bit later. Also, since we've gotten to her, that's why I gave you the handout on women in Luke and Acts. I would encourage you to read that. Uh, this is from Ben Witherington's commentary, and he, he, he does some to dismantle some of the mythology that has developed about the role of women, uh, both in the ancient uh, Near East in the first century, and also uh, makes a great case for uh, things that happened in the early church, some of which we're still going to talk about. But I would encourage you to read through that. Um, it, some really significant things he says in that. Uh, but that's that, that's we're a little bit over time. It's a great place for us to stop. We will pick up there next week. I'll talk a little bit more about Lydia and then we'll get on into the rest of the missionary journey. Now, y'all read, read chapter 16 and 17 for next week. Uh, we're going to we're going to get into um, Paul and Timothy and Silas traveling around. And we're probably going to get into Paul's sermon in Athens on Mars Hill, which is one of my favorite sermons in the uh, letter or the book of Acts. And so go ahead and read those two chapters, because in these travel narratives, um, we're going to move through those fairly quickly. Not a lot that needs to be explained. It's fairly self-explanatory. And so we'll move through those quickly so we have time to focus on the sermons as they come up. All right, y'all, anybody uh, close out questions, comments on any of that before we turn loose here? All right, well, let me pray for us and we will go home. Father, we thank you again for all the ways that you uh, sustain us and watch over us. And Lord, even as we read that passage today about Lydia, uh, we know that unless, and, uh, unless you had opened our hearts to be able to understand the things that are clearly proclaimed in, in the gospel, uh, we would be without hope. And so we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Just as Peter said, in the council, it's by the grace of the Lord Jesus that we're saved. Uh, and we thank you for re revealing those things to us. And all you call us to do is trust you and to give our, our allegiance and our loyalty to you above all others. And Father, uh, in our culture, uh, that's fairly easy to do now. But the days are coming when there's going to be a higher and higher price to be paid for that. So I pray that everything we do here will equip us so that we can equip the generation that's just below us to persevere and to stand firm in face of the persecution that's coming. And we pray and ask all these things for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.